Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of Mike Lee, as recommended by Tyler Smith of Battleship Retention, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about Mike Lee's 1993 film, Naked. Now, before I get into Naked, a little bit of housekeeping. I apologize that it seems like housekeeping has been the um, my M.O. recently, but uh, there has been a lot of stuff going on, and I just want to say uh, that... Uh, next week I will be taking the week off and that is just because um, I am uh, this weekend I am traveling upstate for a a short vacation but I will be returning around midweek next week so I just um, don't have the the time to get on an episode in a um, a timely manner or uh, at least to to give the film and my uh, recording enough attention that uh, you know I feel that you as the listeners deserve Um, and because there is um, kind of a not a, a August is not necessarily a longer month, but with the way the weeks played out, if I skip um, next week or take next week off, I can still have the final two episodes posted within the, the the structure or the confines of the calendar month of August. So next week I will be taking um, a week off um, while I am on a very brief vacation, but then we'll be returning the week of August 19th uh, with a review of um, Secrets and Lies. So now that we've got housekeeping out of the way let's get into the episode on naked and let me start talking about this film with the the positives or the things that i really liked because there are many things or some big things that i really disliked about this film and actually kind of made it for me sort of a um a very unpleasant and um an unpleasant viewing experience that I don't necessarily want to revisit or recommend. But art, like people, as this film would have us believe, is complicated, and there are many parts to the uh, to it. And you know, I can't entirely write something off as wholesale worthless unless it's something like I don't know, uh, the Love Guru. Um, but I'll start with the positives and, and kind of talk about the things that I really was impressed with, the things that I really responded with. And that starts with some of the performances um, being truly exceptional, headed by or, um, well, you know, led by David Thewlis, first and foremost, who was absolutely fantastic in this movie. It was interesting because my, as I talked about with Tyler, my first exposure to David Thewlis was his short role in... Um, uh, in the, the Coen Brothers film, uh, The Big Lebowski, but then my biggest kind of exposure to him, or, or most regular exposure to him, and, and uh, the, 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 the role that I, I really enjoyed him the most in was as Professor Lupin in the Harry Potter franchise. Saw him in some other stuff, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, and the BBC adaptation of um, An Inspector Calls, but um, my first exposure to him, and, and sort of the thing that I knew him for, was Professor Lupin, was this um, adult, but sort of more... Um, friendly, generic um, adult character in a, in, a, in a franchise meant for young adults to adults. Um, and this is... Um, I, I'm super impressed that David Heyman, as a producer of the Harry Potter franchise, kind of was, I'm sure, if not aware of, then had seen this performance and just kind of thought, like, I need to have David Thewlis in 
the Harry Potter franchise. And I know that he had actually auditioned for the part of Professor Quirrell in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, did not get the part, obviously, but then was brought back for uh, Prisoner of Azkaban because he was Alfonso Cuaron's first choice for the, the role, I think the first and only choice. But basically, this is all to say, I did not know that David Thewlis had this in him because of my exposure to him, and he is fucking fantastic. He's, I mean... Maybe it's a, a, a city thing. Um, it probably isn't just a New York City thing, but I, I live in New York, so this is where my mind immediately goes to. So maybe it's just a city thing, but I feel like everyone in New York City, uh, and maybe it's London, maybe it's L.A., maybe it's Chicago, whatever major metropolitan area you are in or near, I feel like everybody knows somebody like this. Um, there was a very specific person that came to mind when I was watching David Thewlis's performance, not some of her or some of his more unsavory elements, such as his misogyny and his um, sexual violence, which I will certainly get into in a little bit. But at least in regards to his attitude towards people and life and sort of larger philosophies, I know a person. I know people exactly like this guy, you know, someone who he seems to really loathe the city and and the urban environment and yet at the same time that's sort of the only place that really you know he belongs here i mean for this takes place in london um and he comes from manchester initially but the the equivalency sort of here is like i imagine his, this was a guy who lived in you know milwaukee or st louis or something and was kind of more drawn to the the big the larger grandeur of new york city and he kind of loathes it as this modern day babylon and yet with his eccentricities and with his um fringe viewpoints that's kind of the only place that he could really belong, the only place that he could really fit in or, or find someone that, find people that respond to him. And, of course, the people that respond to him respond in sort of mostly a negative way, um, although I suppose there is an argument to be made that, um, you know, hurt people hurt people. So he, you know, as a, as a damaged person, he sort of finds in his gravity people who are also damaged and seeking um, to have a story fulfilled about them that they see him playing out, basically. Um, but this guy who sort of, you know, he is very critical of of his friend um uh i believe her name is louise uh yeah louise kind of making the big city or, or the big move from manchester to the big city of london he's very cynical towards that and he's very critical of her for that um so he sort of hates london and he hates this atmosphere and yet this is the kind of the only place that he really f seems to fit in or at least the only place where he you know his lifestyle would not be that out of place you know this kind of aimless philosophical like a uh, drifter basically um you know that he he sort of intellectualizes literally everything at the expense of emotion and it, it, it's instead sort of like he it seems to it seems to me that he um, approaches things intellectually in order to actually avoid emotion um you know so probably he he has you know, he talks in circles and he, or talks circles around people, I should say. What he says he makes a lot of sense. He is not nonsensical, but he sort of talks around people and talks in a way that they can't comprehend, that they can't keep up with him, to sort of, at, this, at, at once sort of, um, show how intellectually superior how superior he is to people but at the same time by refusing to engage emotionally with them or by the only emotion that he really kind of shows to be scorn or even um, self-loathing and self-deprecation has these defense mechanisms set up where he, he doesn't have to be emotional, he doesn't have to show emotion, he doesn't have to connect with people that way. He can kind of keep them at a distance by being this intellectual type, this um, this brilliant, you know, genius character who no one can kind of keep up with him intellectually, and he sort of judges them for that, um, but then also judges people that do try and engage him on, on an intellectual level. I mean, you think of Brian, the, the night security guard, who certainly has his philosophies and his um, views of the world that 
are a little bit more out there, uh, but they also are not up to snuff uh, for what Johnny thinks because they, it is not what he thinks because the, his views of time are, are, are don't fit into the same mold that Johnny has honed over the years. Um, he's this brilliant character that sort of dances around engagement and challenges everything. And there's this question of like, you know, what the fuck does this person even stand for? You know, this is the kind of guy who... <laughs> um, and at this point, I'm thinking about the guy that's specifically in my head who I see as sort of the contemporary Johnny character in my own life. It's just sort of like, you know, the sort of guy who thinks that, you know, uh, Raider Dogs, this is only a test, is like the purest form of visual art, basically. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll, I'll post it on the, the uh, I Do Movies Badly Facebook page. But just this guy who kind of, you know, can kind of sit around and watch all and watch all day, like, experimental 16-millimeter um, avant-garde film and just kind of think, like, this is brilliant, and then sit down and watch them, I mean, like, The Avengers and be like, this is fucking shit get this garbage out of my face like this kind of person who um refuses to accept people on their terms or refuses to accept that any reading or engagement with something except on his own terms is the right way um you know, it, it, <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a brilliance and a, and a nihilism um, to this character. And, and i got to give David, uh, David Thewlis credit and Mike Lee credit for how they worked on this character. Just kind of um, following him really gives us a peek into the attitudes of a specific kind of social class and a time and a place. And I am not very familiar with, um, you know, uh, British or, or UK culture. And certainly I've read some stuff which kind of talks about a, a post-Thatcher era in Britain and how, um, you know, this youth kind of growing up in this sort of disillusioned about society around him and that sort of thing. I unfortunately can't speak uh, more eloquently or, or even more in general on that because it's something that I'm familiar with. But um, just based on his wanderings and how he sort of um, he himself doesn't feel at place anywhere and sort of uh, his ability to kind of just, uh, or familiarity with sort of wandering through the street, you know, wherever he, he, he lays his head is his home for that night and just, uh, connecting with, uh, you know, the, the salt of the earth kind of people that he finds all around him. You do get a sense of a city that is changing, of a society that is changing and this tone and these themes of a, a, a demographic or a, a, a generation that sort of feels out of place, that rejects or is disillusioned by, you know, the, the Thatcher society which came before them, but yet still hadn't really found what they embraced later on. You know, 1993, yes, it was the 90s, and yet uh, the specter of the 80s really hung over the 1990s. I mean, we can think about it here in America. I mean, sure, uh, here Ronald Reagan wasn't president anymore in 1993, uh, but his vice president was. Um, and just that idea of this, you know, this uh, uh, family values and this, you know, purity culture and what, what values were important and, and uh, you know, extrapolated out of that in, in its art. 1993 was very much, you know, living in the specter <clears throat> of the 1980s. And so you do kind of get the sense this transience doesn't just reflect what Johnny is doing with his life, but also sort of a generational thing of of where, where are we going and, and what are we searching for? And the way that he shoots the city is just so not glamorous um and the, the cinematography is done by dick pope who uh was would collaborate again and again with mike lee most specifically not most specifically well i guess most specifically to this podcast he did shoot happy go lucky in 2008 which we'll get to in a couple weeks and also um mr turner in 2000 i think it was 16 where he got a, a an oscar nomination for best cinematography but did not win um so the way that he shoots it he's very much in tune with what lee is trying to do and you you do kind of i can get the sense of how 
this is going to lay the groundwork for a, a fertile um, partnership going to be uh, moving forward. Um, and, and, and I guess I, I want <clears throat> um, to uh, kind of elaborate on these thoughts of Johnny. As always, I'm going to uh, refer to the, the master, Roger Ebert, and, and kind of read a quote specifically from his review of, of Naked to kind of... Um, to, to allow him to say what I am struggling to say or what I could not say so effectively. And I, I will, this is from his review in 1994. I will post this, uh, the review to this on the Facebook page as well. So um, he's talking about Mike Lee. He says, he creates a kind of heroism in Johnny. It's not that we like him or approve of him, but that we must admire the dogged way he sticks to his guns and forges ahead through misery, anger, and despair. There is a scene here that is among the best Lee has ever done. Johnny strikes up a conversation with a night watchman who takes him on a midnight tour of a modern office building. The subtext is that the watchman will never do what the employees in the building do in the daytime, but owes his survival to his job of guarding it for them at night from the likes of Johnny, who lacks even that much of a toehold. Um, and it's actually in that scene specifically, the, the scene where they're, uh, you know, where they're walking through the building, but then there's a specific shot or sequence where they're having a philosophical conversation. Johnny's extrapolating um, on his idea of how 1999 is going to be the apocalypse and how the mark of the beast in Revelation 666 is going to be the, you know, the the barcode or the chips kind of implanted on, on your uh, on your hands or on your forehead. I, I remember when this was um, a real big thing among, uh, amongst uh, conservative evangelical tracts. I even got handouts about it at Halloween when I would go trick-or-treating around the New Jersey suburbs. Um, that scene is the closest that this film comes to me for being or, or, or it's the closest that the film gets to transcending a time and a place and speaking to something which is I don't want to say evergreen but speaks to more than just this time uh, you know the uh, early 90s in this place um, you know London the city um, when they're talking about their their differing not even conflicting but their differing ideas about how they view time and what is going to happen and this philosophical battle between um, Johnny saying there's no such thing as the present or the future and Brian trying to point out these contradictions like hey but you're you're you've contradicted yourself by saying everything that you ever have been or ever will be and this verbal sparring between two people one of whom you can clearly tell has been thinking about this for years and another guy who seems to be sort of um, not even dabbling or dipping his toe into it but is trying to to latch onto something to give him meaning basically you have these two opposing ideas you have johnny who very much um i, I think has, is very firm and very confident in, in his belief in nihilism and in, in basically nothing matters you know um uh that and, and and he and he reads out and seeks stuff to kind of adhere not even not adhere that's the wrong word but to validate his belief in a nihilism basically in the fact that nothing matters to justify his 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 repeated attempts to keep people at a distance to kind of not have a home to criticize what people do view as a home and a routine as in a, a job um he criticizes louise for leaving manchester and coming to the big city and finding a job and working in a job that she doesn't love and yet he himself is what does he do? He does nothing. He has no money. He has no possessions, which is not to say that possessions and consumerism and capitalism gives someone validity and meaning, but he has nothing. And not in the sort of, you know, 
noble, wandering samurai ronin sort of way, but just in the sense of, you know, he's got no place to keep it. He's got no direction. He doesn't collect things because to collect things would imply he is building or working towards something, and he doesn't do that because he doesn't believe that there's anything to work or build towards. And yet you have Brian, the security guard, who instead is trying to read these things to make more sense of his place in the world. He's trying to, you know, he has this cottage uh, that he wants to live in, and, and he's trying to justify... Um, his experience and his desire for that. Um, Johnny engages with text and with these intellectual ideas to sort of validate uh, his belief that nothing matters, whereas Brian engages with these things to try and find validation that things do matter and how they conflict with each other is interesting, not just intellectually or thematically, but also in the way that Mike Lee shoots it, where it's the two of them in silhouette against um, this big, bright-lit building um, that is filled with literally nothing. There is no space. The, gu- the Brian is guarding space, basically. And it's just wonderful. I, I believe it's a long take um, in which Johnny is just spouting what he believes in, and Brian is kind of pushing back every now and again. And um, according to IMDb, it, was, it took 27 takes to get that, and Mike Lee ended up using one of the first ones because it was the best ones, which is always often the case uh, when it comes to those uh, directors who love multiple takes on things. Um, that is super interesting to me. That is um, that that conflict and that contrasting of ideas and how they. Um, I don't want to say Brian is an intellectual equal, but Brian dares to sort of mix emotion in with his intellect to kind of have a desire, have you know he wants something, whereas Johnny wants nothing. And Johnny, you can tell, judges him because Brian wants something, and. Once again, I got to give credit to Thulis and to Mike Lee because you also get the sense, without really hitting on anything specific, you do get the sense that Johnny has developed this as a defense and as a show where this is a guy who has been hurt or where something has not worked out for him. And so he develops this defensive shell of nihilism and to keep people at a distance because he feels like he is entitled to something or because he feels like, um, yeah, he, 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 should have something that he doesn't, which is basically the same exact thing as saying he feels entitled to something. Um, But you do, I I don't want to say you get the sense that he doesn't believe in any of this, but you do get the sense of this wasn't the way that he always was. And I say that not because of anything which exists in the text, but because when I'm thinking about the people I know in my life that are sort of like this Johnny character, um, I know that that's in their past. And I know that Mike Lee has created a character in which I see these parallels, and so it's easy for me to project on Johnny. This is a guy who's been hurt. This is a guy who feels like he was entitled to something and didn't get it, and because of that, he's going to respond with bitterness and with cynicism and with pain, both emotionally and physically. Which leads me into my next point, which is sort of opening the floodgates now for the things I did not care for in this movie and which made it an unpleasant experience for me, was let's be very clear about this right here and now, the two prominent males in this film, um, in Johnny and Jeremy, um, for some reason I, I keep wanting to call him Sebastian and I have to get off of that, but Johnny and Jeremy, let's be clear about these two guys, they are completely despicable. Um, not just, uh, I mean, towards everyone, but in the scope of this film, towards women specifically. Um, with the exception of Brian, who you actually kind of could make an argument that maybe there's a bit of, if not friendship, then maybe um, understanding or, or, or camaraderie between the two of them. The only 
other male that Johnny encounters is, um, I think his name is Archie. Um, he's played by uh, uh, Ewan Bremner, who is also, um, I think he's Sick Boy in Train Spotting. Um, and Archie is is a is a clearly mentally disturbed man, um, and you kind of see Johnny as um, <laughs> when he interacts with him, you see that his intellectual superior doesn't really have much meaning to Archie. He, he's not thinking or is not approaching the world in the same way. So instead, Johnny sort of becomes a a limp, useless sort of self-deprecating vessel, basically. Like, what is his purpose of being there or of interacting with this guy? But outside of that, the main characters that Johnny interacts with are women. You have Archie's uh, girlfriend, Maggie. You have uh, Louise, his ex. You have Louise's roommate, Sophie. Um, you have the woman next door or, or, or across the way that Brian has a crush on. And then you have the woman that uh, Johnny is, is seen having sex with in the opening shot of the film. And he is universally shitty to all of them. Um, and while we do see that his being shitty is not a, is not specific to women, the women that populate this film and that surround Johnny are treated terribly and are also not given the same depth as is given Johnny. Um, and it's not just Johnny, of course. The Jeremy character is straight up a misogynist and a rapist, and... Johnny is also a misogynist and also, let's be clear about this, a rapist. There are um, four, I believe there are four four sex scenes in this film, perhaps five, but there's at least four, maybe five, and all of them are rape. I want to be very clear about this. We're not going to, we're not going to dance around and kind of be like, oh, well, um, you know, it's, it's, it's rough sex or it's sexual assault. Let's use the harsh word rape here because that's what these are. That's what all of these are. Each one of these sex scenes involves um, women crying. or Not all of them, but all of them involve either one or more of these elements. Uh, the woman crying, um, physical pain being inflicted on them, and them explicitly saying no. That's from the very beginning when we're introduced to Johnny. And, and, and that's, honestly, that opening scene just kind of made me, it, it put me behind the eight ball. Like, I don't know how I'm going to enjoy the scene when the first thing you're showing me is, here's Johnny raping a woman in an alley and then stealing a car and driving to London. Okay, what do you want from me from this film? Because, sure, you can, you can hide behind, I guess, like this movie is trying to be objective or trying to be observational, but... It reminds me of when I was talking to David uh, Bax for Mumblecore, and I asked him, um, what makes something cinematic? And his response was, well, if it's filmed, it is cinematic. If it is cinema, then it is cinematic. Um, but I still have the question of, like, why do, I, why do I need to see a movie made about this guy? Why did Lee feel that he needed to make it? Because, let's be honest with ourselves, I don't need to watch a movie involving misogyny and rape to know that misogyny and rape are, are are terrible. I don't need to see a movie about that. I don't need to see an exploration about that. And I certainly don't need to see a movie about a guy in which everyone is trying to tell me, you know, this movie explores how complicated he is. Cool, you can do that without him raping more than one person. Um, and you can do that without him even, like, physically assaulting a woman that the guy he just connected with somewhat maybe intellectually and emotionally, um, has a crush on, and when he is viewing them doing it. 
I, I just, I, I, and, and I, I, I mean, I, I say this as admittedly having watched things and greatly enjoyed things that do involve sexual assault and these troublesome elements. I'm a big fan of Game of Thrones. As of right now, The Nightingale, Jennifer Ken's follow-up to The Babadook, is on my top ten list of the year. And yet, when it comes to those two things, Game of Thrones was continuously and rightly criticized for the way that it continuously went back to rape and specifically went back to rape as a vessel for development of characters and, in specific cases, the development of a male character. And when it comes to The Nightingale... Um, it is a, it's a movie that that speaks to systemic oppression and how there is a hierarchy of these things that it's like yes, this woman was raped and her family was murdered and she is a victim, but it's also how that passes along, how it starts out with a male at power and how it trickles down to a woman, how that trickles down to a non-Caucasian person, and it's an exploration of power and oppression and what that means, and how the pursuit of that, not the pursuit of that, I'm sorry, but how the repercussions of that, and the pursuit of, uh, and how we respond to those things, how that all is a putrefying and destructive force. So, when it comes to Naked, I don't know why any of this stuff is necessary, I think you can explore the Johnny character and his complications and how his own self-loathing like ripples or, or ripples out in waves to 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 reflect in loathing of other people and his desire to inflict pain on other people. And so I I don't know I I just I'm sorry I I'm getting caught up in my own thought and sort of like I'm running without the ball here. My, my, my mouth is, is moving faster than my brain is able to catch up. So, um, I'll try and regroup by reading, uh, this quote to you. Um, and it's from, it's from actually one of the criterion collection essays, uh, when naked was released specifically in 2005. And this is kind of ultimately the most, I think, despicable thing for me. It says to clinch the case that Johnny cannot be disposed of by branding him a rapist and a sadist, Lee introduces a subplot involving a rich twit named Jeremy, who is, indeed, a rapist, a sadist, and most likely a psychopath. Jeremy uses his class privilege and power to subjugate, hurt, and humiliate women. There is nothing ambiguous about his actions or his desires, although in psychoanalytic terms, fear of feminization may be at the root of his, of his behavior as well. What is remarkable about Naked is that it reveals who Johnny is, not only by stripping him bare, but also by juxtaposing him with the truly horrific thing he is not. So basically, by including a straight-up cartoonish depiction of a misogynist and a rapist who is the most shitty person that you could possibly think of, by including him as juxtaposing Johnny who is a complicated rapist and misogynist, I'm just supposed to think that Johnny is less shitty because of this more shitty person. That is a horrible justification for having these two characters in the same film. It's a horrible justification for having the Jeremy character at all, but also by introducing this loathsome, just horrible character, oh, well, here's something that's worse, so this other rapist and misogynist is not so bad, so maybe let's... Let's feel better about exploring him and following him. And, I, I mean, to be clear, Mike Lee does not want us to, I think, like Johnny. He certainly doesn't want us to root for him uh, because the film ends with him kind of 
just delving into the same destructive behavior that we saw at the beginning. You know, he promises that he'll go back to Manchester. He doesn't, steals money, and then leaves, just kind of leaving his friend Louise in, in the wake. Um, but then, I guess, if we're not supposed to root for him, if we're not supposed to like him, why? Like, why do this then? Um, like I said, Thulis has, has is a fantastic performer, and he gives a fantastic performance. But why this character, specifically in this way? And and I've been struggling with this really all day, um, because it. I'm sorry. It's this thing where you know clearly, like I said, Mike Lee does not want us to like Johnny. I, I, he's not even an anti-hero. You could just kind of say he is a less villainous person than 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 the real villain. I I, I don't know, but I I guess it's just you know I, I don't need um I don't need this film to remind me that misogyny and rape are, are, are terrible things. I don't need this film to uh, remind me that hurt people hurt people. I see it every day. And now, I don't know. I, admittedly, I'm saying this in 2019, where the conversation around sexual assault and equity, and specifically what we depict in film uh, and art and why and who is doing it and what their purpose is, that conversation has changed a great deal than it was in 1993. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to put that all aside and look at this film in the context that it came out of and be okay with it. Both Johnny and Jeremy are misogynists and rapists. They're on different levels, I guess, but once you get into that shitty territory, does a level even matter? Complicating all this, of course, is if you have the Criterion uh, film or you have read the essay, you'll know that the, the essay that I just quoted that was trying to justify uh, the inclusion of Jeremy to make uh, Johnny seem less shitty was written by a woman. Uh, Amy, I'm sorry, I don't know if I pronounced her name right, Amy Taubin, Taubin, T-A-U-B-I-N, and it was written in 2005, this was not written in the early 90s, this was written over a decade after the film was released, as the conversation had started to shift a bit. It wasn't written in 2015, it wasn't written last year, and so, but I just think that if if there is a, a, you know, if there is someone who is watching this film who is not a male in the position of, of power and interpretation societally that males typically are, who is watching this movie and, and still getting that out of it, then I also start doubting myself and thinking, like, am I being too high and mighty here? It, you know, who am I to, to criticize, I guess? And so th- this has been a real struggle kind of approaching this and, and engaging with this film since I finished watching it. And, and I suppose some people could say, well, the fact that I am having this trouble, the fact that I am struggling to engage with it, like, means that, that it is something. Like, I, I guess so, except I, I'm, I'm more struggling, not in the sense of, like, you know, should I, you know, should I watch it again and what am I missing or what, or what would I get out of it upon a second viewing, but more in the sense of why was this, why is this held in such high esteem when it seems to me, to be incredibly problematic. 
Now, even as I'm sitting here talking about this and, and kind of as my thoughts are trying to catch up with me, I'm even thinking like, okay, but I was also a big fan of Wolf of Wall Street, which in my mind is a film where Scorsese is clearly not a fan of the Jordan Belfort character and is supposed to be conveying to you how absurd and over-the-top and such a wretched human being this person was. But I will also say that that comes from context as well. Um, Not just societal context in the sense of Jordan Belfort being a real character and and, and what came out of it and, and the comeuppance that he got and all that sort of stuff, but also the context of Scorsese as a filmmaker and his attitudes towards characters like him. Goodfellas is not a film that glorifies the mafia. Goodfellas is a film that very clearly lays bare the wretchedness of toxic masculinity, the pursuit of power, and where that gets you. Or Casino, once again, a bunch of males who were, excuse me, went out to the desert to pursue power and corruption and how that destroyed them all. Or Taxi Driver, in which um, a uh, we are clearly supposed to be, I think, skeptical towards, judgmental of a guy who takes it upon himself to be this noble vigilante justice warrior trying to recapture the morality of a city embodied in the life of a young prostitute. I mean, that's crazy, and the film knows that that's crazy, and the film knows that there is something off with Travis Bickle. So I have a context of Scorsese's back catalog and his attitudes as a person to kind of know that when I watch Wolf of Wall Street, I'm not supposed to be praising Jordan Belfort and his exploits like the douchebags in Wall Street who watched that and cheered for it. I don't have that context with Mike Lee, so my first exposure to him as an artist is, here's a film in which the two most prominent male characters are misogynists and rapists. What am I supposed to do with that? Because clearly this is a film that people love. It got nominated for so many awards. It was raved on the film festival circuit. And Roger Ebert was a humongous fan of it. Now maybe it's one of those things that if, you know, you know, if he were still alive, he'd revisit it and maybe think that he had, you know, that his opinion had shifted. Or, or maybe consensus or opinions have shifted on this. But it's just... I understand the approach of, you know, he, like, Lee as a filmmaker is being observational, is being objective. Fine. I think these characters are shitty, so why are you subjecting me to it? I don't need you to be non-judgmental for me to arrive at the conclusion that these are terrible people and I don't want them to succeed. At the same time, I'm conflicted because as a a person of faith and as a a professed liberal snowflake, um, I also believe in redemption for people and the capacity for forgiveness. But the character of Johnny is clearly, is clearly not interested in that. And the character of Jeremy is way beyond hope of any kind. So what do I do with this film? I don't... <laughs> I don't need you to show me a character like Johnny for me to think, oh, yeah, 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 okay, people are complicated and this guy is hurt and shitty towards people. Mad. Like, I, I know that. Maybe I would have responded differently to this film if I saw it ten years ago, but it's just I, I... I kind of found it reprehensible, I think. 
and, and I'm still grappling with that, and maybe my opinions, even in the next couple of days, will change or evolve, or maybe I'll read something which will bring it to me, or, or, or cast this in a different light that'll make me rethink my position, but, or it could just be that people respond to art different ways because of different experiences and different opinions and, and different tastes, and at least as of right now, I, I just kind of found the film a bit reprehensible and grappling with certain themes in ways that I did not find edifying or progressive or satisfying. That's just my take. Um, maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't, uh, but that's kind of where I stand with this right now. Um, as I said, I will post links to uh, Ebert's review and to that Criterion essay on the I Do Movies Badly Facebook page. And hopefully I remember um, to also post uh, the, the YouTube video for This Is Not A Test or This Is Only A Test. I've already forgotten, but it's stupid bullshit um, avant-garde video art, which... Uh, I'm sure some people, like I said, including Johnny, would probably think is the only pure form of, of visual art expression. So, um, if you do want to revisit this film, if maybe you've loved it and now you've heard me saying what I just said and think like, oh man, maybe I was wrong or maybe I should revisit this. Or if you want to watch it again because you want to be thoroughly armed with a counter argument as to why you think I am wrong, both of which are fine. You can only do so uh, if, you, if you either have the Criterion disc already or if you go through the Criterion channel. It is unfortunately not available in any legitimate streaming services in the sense of uh, Prime Video or Vudu or uh, YouTube rentals or that sort of thing. It is only available on either the disc that you may or may not already have or that a friend of yours may or may not already have or through the Criterion channel. Um, but the good news is, if you are not a Criterion Channel subscriber, they do offer a 30-day free trial in which you can kind of see if you actually want to pay for it or not. But that also means that uh, if you do want to revisit this film to either agree with me or um, vehemently disagree with me, or have a conversation with me perhaps about how uh, it's a bit more nuanced um, in your take, then you only have 30 days from um, this listening, I suppose, or actually 30 days from your from your signing up for a free trial in order to, to do so. But And if you do have a strong opinion one way or another, I, of course, want to hear from you. It's easy enough to reach me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. Uh, shoot me an email. I always respond as quickly as possible because people don't do that very often, and I think you should. Or catch up on backup episodes. Backup? Back episodes of I Do Movies Badly at battleshipretention.com or go to um, idomoviesbadly.podbean.com or tweet at me. On Twitter at Nolan Fixes Teeth. So that does it for Naked. I am honestly really hoping that I respond better to Secrets and Lies. I hate when I have such a strong negative reaction to the first film because it just kind of casts a dark shadow over the rest of the month. Um, but if I see something else that maybe will kind of show more of that context as I just described maybe this it'll kind of help clear up the cloud over over naked a little bit so um do keep in mind that next week i am off and will be returning the week of august 19th but when i do come back for the week of august 19th i will be reviewing secrets and lies and where hopefully i will be just a little bit less ignorant
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.